specifically gospel calling, which has to do with you. So today is gospel and heart. So the a big idea of quarter two is how do people change? We're talking about gospel change, but my call to you from the very beginning was draw a picture of how people change just in general. So some bold volunteers, somebody be willing to show me your picture. Hardly anybody in this room is going to see it, so don't be too shy. I'll just talk about it. All right. Can I see your picture? Tell me your name. Kenny. Kenny, What church? Roosevelt. All right. No, that's great. So, darkness. Okay. Cross. Light. Spirit. City. Okay. So it's a ball of darkness. The cross. The Holy Spirit, and then the city. So it kind of follows a linear trajectory line from darkness to the cross, the Spirit of God working, and then light in a city. Which I love that image. Great. Tell me your name in church. Andrew, Redemption Tempe. Great. So walk me through it. So we have a baby being born, and we have a toddler playing with blocks and a soccer ball. Then he graduates and gets a job, gets married, becomes old, and dies. Great. So he grows just through the natural cycle of life. Is that the idea? Yeah. yeah. Okay, so growth. Took it very little. How does somebody grow? This is really really actually helpful in the sense of there is a natural life cycle to literal physical growth, that you watch the real world and you go, growth happens, right, all the way, and there's a move up, and then you get old, but then it ends in in death, right? So it's almost like a bell curve. Um, Anybody else? What'd you draw? I love it. So this one's a simple image of a stick figure on their knees. So prayer. People change by prayer. That's great. Tell me your name and Heather at Alhambra. Redemption Alhambra. Anybody else? This side's killing you guys, by the way. Alhambra in the house. Name? Holly. Holly. All right. She's a good artist. Walk it, walk me through it. Okay. So a broken heart into the cross. Specifically, the cross has the word grace on it. I know that's okay, but the cross represents grace. To a healed heart, the mending of a heart specifically, to clear vision, to outpouring. All right. That word outpouring, it's like a cup being poured out. Anybody else? Anybody on that side want to redeem yourself? Nice, Christina. Name and church. Redemption Gilbert. Gilbert. All right. Walk me through it. Only through the cross can your heart Mm -hmm. change. This is my black heart right here, and it's a process. I don't get wonderful. That's great. So there's hearts going down from kind of the top to the bottom, starting with a dark heart, and gradually more light comes into the heart, but then it's a person moving through the cross. That's great. All right, here's my image of how people change. You guys are all super spiritual. So if somebody said to me, draw a picture of how people change... Picture's not me cleaning. You're going to see quickly, I'm not an artist. Let's see. I'll, in order to be a little better artist, I'll trace. All right, there's my picture. What are those? hands, okay? I'm going to let you sit with that for a minute. Let me start by saying this. When we talk right now about change, the title of the quarter is gospel change, our gospel in heart. 
right? So the heart is the focus. We're going to get to why, biblically speaking. Right now, I just want to talk to you about how people change. So let me ask you a couple questions, and I'm going to ask your participation. So get ready. If I want to get in shape, tell me how I change from being a skinny, fat guy right? That's, I don't look that big, but if you saw me, it's, it's not a great sight. So if I wanted to change, how do I change? Somebody say, what do I do? Go to the gym. Okay. What else do I have to do? Diet. Everything organic. Drink kale shakes. Mm. Yeah. That's a, that's a great point. So right away, it's like gym, food, certain types of food, right? And, but your mindset has to be in a certain direction. I would argue even to ensure you begin to do these things or sustain you do these things. If I want to change personally and become... What's a way I could change? How do people want to change? New Year's resolutions, what do they want to do? If I wanted to stop smoking, I don't smoke, just so you know. If I wanted to stop smoking, what, what would you tell me? How do I change? What's that? Mm. Replace it with something else. Remember that word, replace. What else? Community. Tell me why you'd say that. Mm. Yeah. Community. That's great. What are other New Year's resolutions people might make? Yeah, go ahead. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Clarify the reasons why um, you would do this. So let me say this quickly. When you get into a conversation on change from a gospel perspective, we would argue pretty uh, vehemently, and you're going to get more of this later, that the center, biblically speaking, the language the Bible uses of the control center of human beings is the heart. Okay, so when the Bible speaks about the heart, it's not just speaking about the physical heart, but it's really speaking about the control center of someone. So when Jesus is dealing with these Pharisees, um, specifically in regards to what people eat and cannot eat, he makes this, Jesus was very funny, by the way, okay? So he has this scene where he says, do you not understand that it's not what goes into a person that makes him unclean? Because I can eat stuff, and in the end, I'm going to go to the bathroom. This is literally what Jesus says. I'm going to go to the bathroom, right? I'm going to get rid of it. So it's not what goes into a person that makes them unclean. It's what comes out of a person. For out of the heart of people, and he says, comes murder, theft, adultery, so on and so forth. Right? The implication then is out of the heart of people also can come things like the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. So if you read Jesus consistently, there's always this going back to the center part of who you are. Let's get beyond the facade. So there's these famous Bible verses like, man looks at the outward appearance, God looks at the heart. David, right, who was a mess, was a man after God's own heart, right? So you have these moments. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount very clearly goes at people who think they're really good, look down upon other people, and he says, why is it that you look at the speck in someone else's eye when you have a log in your own, right? So he's constantly getting underneath something and going at the heart. You have heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you've looked upon another with lust, you've committed adultery already. And he'll use even this idea of in the heart. So the, the Bible really speaks about the heart as the control mechanism. So the question about change is how does the heart change? Or how do we get at the heart? So one of the big things that's true of all of us in any environment is that most people 
would talk about change only at a behavioral level. But Jesus tends, tends to say over and over and over again, you can change your behavior and still be grossly sick. Still have never really changed, right? But what's interesting in the Bible, so John eight thirty one um, is a passage along, we'll read a couple of them just to start us off. So John chapter 8, verse 31 Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, who had believed in him, if, Jesus does this all the time, and we really, really need to take it seriously, if we're serious about change. He says, if, which means all over Jesus' teaching, there's conditions unto the reality of our change. So he says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, which means if you don't abide in his word, what would be the implication? Okay, just take a deep breath here for a moment, okay, because this is about grace, and we're going to get to this in a minute. This is about grace, but you've got to understand all over Jesus' teaching, he says stuff like this. We'll come to another one in a minute. He says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And if you abide in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. How many of you guys have seen the movie Shawshank Redemption? Remember that? When he writes that, like, the truth will set you free. The power of that movie is it's tapping into something deep, deep, deep inside human longings that human beings go, I really want to be free. Like, I, I love the notion, the idea of that. The reason that movie spoke so much to all of us who likely may never be in a maximum security prison is this sense of, but there's a lot of life in which we feel imprisoned. A lot. Like we're in our own cage. Musicians will sing about this stuff a lot. So, so you, you understand he's saying something that specifically, this is the same Jesus who's saying, this is about this. And he's saying, if you abide in me and you want this to change, there are things you have to put your hands to. Okay, specifically, you have to put your hands to. Another one, um, if you go to Matthew chapter 7, I'm going here because I just preached this Sunday, so it's easy for me. Matthew chapter 7, at the end of the whole entire Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, not just hears them, but does them, will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. The rain falls, the floods come, the winds blow, beat on the house, but it doesn't fall because it had been founded on the rock. So here's what I want you to see immediately. The reason I would say this, everything we said about how somebody changes, whether it be to stop smoking or to get in shape or any other thing, I want to be educated, is this sense of you got to get your hands dirty, all hands on deck, right? So you've heard this phrase, complete it. Practice makes, okay, I don't think that's a totally a true statement. I think practice makes habit, and habit leads to the results that we want. So for tonight, we'll think about practice makes habit. So in 2002, which is about 14 years ago, there's this very famous sporting moment in sports. Any of you guys heard the name Allen Iverson? Okay, Allen Iverson, September of something, it was September of 2002, has this moment where his coach comes out and tells the media that he skipped practice. Now, if you don't know anything about Allen Iverson, some people love him, some people hate him. I'm a lover. I love, love, love Allen Iverson. So listen to this. This is, they interview him and they go, what about you missing practice? Here's what he says. Can, can you hear it? Y'all hear it, then that's that. I mean, I might have missed one practice this year. But if if somebody say he doesn't come to practice. He says practice 22 times. Out of all the practices this year, that's enough. If I can't practice, I can't practice, man. I'm hurt, I'm hurt. I mean, simple as that. It ain't about that. I mean, it's, 
It's not about that at all. You know what I'm saying? I mean, but it's it's it's, it's easy to, to to talk about. It's easy to sum it up when you just talk about practice. We sitting here. I supposed to be the franchise player, and we're in here talking about practice. I mean, listen. We in here. I'm supposed to be a franchise player, and we're talking about practice. It's and he kept saying it's not about that. It's not about that. So what he's frustrated is he feels massively disrespected, okay? I'm on Iverson's side. I love this guy, okay? But here's what I want to tell you. It is about practice. You don't practice, you don't change. Okay? If you don't practice, you don't change. So here's what we want to talk about now. It is about practice, And if in the end, we want to abide in Christ and he in us, only then can we bear much fruit. There is burden upon you and I to work at abiding. So Jude 1 verse 21 says this, keep yourselves in the love of God. That is really an interesting phrase. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Now, Truth be told, if I hear that, I'm going, I don't like this because I know I can't keep myself there. So let me tell you a, a, a story. The Bible says that. There's a guy named Carl Ellis, and he tells this story <coughs> of the difference between cat grace and monkey grace. Okay, so here's the way the story goes. When you look at a monkey a, that's a child that's with their mother, and the monkey's going through the jungle. The mom monkey's going through the jungle. The baby monkey holds on for dear life, and you see the baby holding on to the neck of the mom as it's swinging from tree to tree, and it's just holding like mad, like, hold on, hold on, because if you don't, you'll die, right? So it's like, hold on, hold on, hold on. Now, a cat, on the other hand, when a mother cat picks up its kitten, how does it pick up the kitten? Grabs the back of the neck, picks it up. And you, the same way the cats, the, the baby cats swinging, like going, this isn't very fun. It's kind of like going to Magic Mountain and feeling like you're going to vomit, right? They're going back and forth. I don't know, but in the end, the holding on to is in the hands of the mother. Carl Ellis finishes and he goes, thank God for cat grace, right? Like, thank God that God's the one holding on to us and we're not holding on to him. Hear me very, very clearly, and we're going to get at this. God holds on to you. If you believe God holds on to you, at the same time, Jude says we have to keep ourselves in the love of God. The commands in the Bible to abide in Christ, to remain in him, and he will remain in us. There is a responsibility upon us to get at the heart. What that means is our pursuit of change, just like any change, cannot and will not be a passive endeavor. At the same time, you need to understand you're, push, you're pushing into the God who's holding on to you. Okay, write that down. What change is about is pressing into the God who's holding on to you, the God who grabbed hold of you first, the God who holds on to you now. You're recognizing it. So like, let's say this image, this just came to me. God grabbed us, held us, holds us. We can be looking the other way, like, I refuse it, or you can turn in and, let's say it this way, embrace the hug. Embrace the love. It's the moment that you turn into Christ and really press into the love of God. This isn't make God love you. It's saying keep yourself there. Don't run away from it. Keep yourself there, and that's where change ultimately is going to happen. So here's the way I'd say it. Change happens through practicing love. I'm going to give you a simple definition of love. It can be defined in all kinds of different ways. So let's start here. God is love. So God, um, if you think about God as love in the Trinity, I don't, I get it at times when, I think the best way to describe love and the Trinity is in a circle. There's a lot of church history that supports this, by the way. So, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, but that are functioning. The Father's not the Son, the Son's not the Father, the Son's not the Spirit, the Spirit's not the Son or the Father, right? But they're one God, 
in unison, the way in which church history speaks about the Trinity, how it gives credence to the fact that God is love, is a big word called perichoresis, P-E-R-O-C-H. I'm not going to, it's like this. I can't do it out loud. Perichoresis, I think. Anybody that's theological in here can just can correct my spelling. Here's what the idea of perichoresis is. Don't blush, but this is true. Theologians would say the best way to express perichoresis is interpenetration. So when the, the son says, I am in the Father and he is in me, and my aspiration is that you would be in me, right, is that ultimately, here's my definition of love. Love is the enjoyment of another. It's always others-oriented, and it's a desire then to expand the circle. So love is the enjoyment of another and the desire to expand the circle. So you can ask me a question about this later, but this is really important. The center point of the gospel, I cannot emphasize this enough. If you, if you want to change and you want to really really experience the love of God, get this. The fundamental point of the gospel is not your papers that say you're right with God. It's your actual adoption. So here's what I mean by that. Many people think about the center point of the gospel, and it's a massive point. If it doesn't happen, you aren't his. But in this courtroom mentality, which is true, 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 you stand before a righteous God, he deals with your sin, and he declares you righteous, and you get your papers, I've been declared righteous. And many people, and you'll hear this, and you do need to see this as a means of the love of God, because it was at infinite cost to himself that he could enable you to be in right standing. But hear this. I had a friend of mine tell me this image once, and I love it. If you adopted a child, and the child for the rest of their lives walked around and went, look at my papers. Look at my papers. Look at the papers. I'm legally adopted. Look at my papers. You'd go, that's weird and not even healthy, right? What should the adopted child be doing? Sitting in the embrace of the father and in the mother, being a son or daughter, living in their adoption. So church history, Martin Luther and John Calvin, this is a simple way to do it. If you're ever interested in this, I can tell you other things to read. Had a bit of a tiff of a disagreement of how to think about righteousness, how sinners become righteous. Luther did an incredible amount of work to try to display to all of us that we don't fundamentally, we don't become righteous in our own efforts. Yes, thank God for Martin Luther in that. We don't. You don't get made righteous by your own efforts. So Luther communicated this. We become righteous through an alien righteousness, a righteousness that's not our own. Okay, you get that? Meaning it's God's righteousness put upon you. You can't make yourself righteous. Can I get an amen? Amen, right? If you think you can make yourself righteous, good luck. And just short, direct statement, you're not a Christian. Um, That is meant to get you to laugh a little bit, but it's true. Um, That's the heart of Christianity. So Martin Luther's right in that. But the imagery that came out of that idea is that ultimately, I'm over here, the way you guys communicated a dark heart, right? A dark heart. I need to get my heart to be made clean. Here's an alien righteousness of God. Let's say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who at infinite, through dying on the cross offers to us forgiveness of sin and deliverance of righteousness, then the idea is, here's this big word, of the imputation, the placing upon you, the giving to you Christ's righteousness. Now, hear me very clearly. I believe in imputation. I think it's massively, massively important to the gospel. What I don't agree with biblically is that this is the imagery. So people argue on this, but over 200, uh, 147, I think is what it is, 147 times in the New Testament, this phrase, in Christ, is mentioned. Okay? In Christ. Remember what I said? That 
Love is the enjoyment of another. So for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, Hebrews says. So for joy, he's enjoying us, and then he's trying to expand the circle, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The word adoption, the offer of the gospel is that you would be invited into the very Godhead. Be called a son or daughter. And you're exhorted to be in Christ. In Christ, all these things happen. In Christ, then what does he say? Abide in me. I am in the Father. He is in me. Come in. So the issue, this is the the language of it, is union. So in the end, do I need a righteousness that's not my own? Yes. Do I get it by it being placed upon me in this way of you get it and now I'm away from you? No. I get it in Christ. And hear this, it's not even, it's true it's through Christ, but it's not like I move through Christ and now have it and now I'm clothed. And it's like, no, I get it and remain in it by remaining in Christ who's the only righteous one. Okay, guys, I want you to hear that, that is not minor imagery. It's not, especially if the way in which you're changed, which just so you know this, non-Christian people who are studying change are writing books saying people change through love. Over and over and over again, they're writing books saying people change. People that have encountered trauma, people who have encountered PTSD, people, people change through love. So this is so important. God is love. This idea communicates not a transaction, but an invitation into the very life of the God who is love. It's adoption. You, in believing, are in the family of God and doted over like a son or daughter. So in a very real way, this moment of Jesus' baptism, when the Father declares of Jesus, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, if you are in him, he is consistently looking over you saying, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. You see that? This is my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. So here are four arrows we'll talk about and then um, finish up the ways in which (coughs) practical and functional change occurs. Think in spheres. Okay. God... You, I'll say I, others, First John 4, we love God because what? He first loved us, okay? Change always starts, always, 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 always starts with God's action towards us. Christianity starts, sustains, and remains through God's movement towards the world. Okay? He's love. We don't find love any other way. So here's the first arrow to change. Being loved by God. Now, I don't have much time, and I'm, I'm going to do all I can to not move in uh, to Chris and Kevin's time. You have to practice being loved by God if you want to change. Somebody right now, open your Bible to Zephaniah 3.17 and read it. Stand up and read it out loud. Be bold. (coughs) Somebody go for it. We don't have tons of time. Stand up, read Zephaniah 3.17. You can get it and just Google it and open it up and read it. Loud. Will you stand up and just real quick, because I'm going to ask you to point out a couple things. So here's what I want you to see from that passage. The Lord your God is in your midst. He's a mighty one. So there's a question all the time we have when it comes to trust of coming to God and even being loved by anyone of are they trustworthy and are they worth it? He's a mighty one who is a savior. Okay, so understand this. This is, and you guys know that song, your love is, your love is, your love is. 
strong, right? It's strong love. So this is strong. He's strong. He's mighty one will save. Read the next section. <laughs> okay. Doting. Okay. God to those whom belong to him. He rejoices over you with gladness. Okay. So there's these moments in a family's life where a father may say to their child, and listen to me on this, I love you but you have all kinds of questions. He loves me, but does he like me? Okay, he says he loves me, and sure he loves me, he's my dad, but does he like me, right? Hear me on this. God likes you, okay? He rejoices over you with gladness, not with reluctance, not with hesitation. He rejoices over you with gladness, Okay, now think about this. Do you ever feel loud and crazy and chaotic, anxious, depressed, right? So what, how does a child get quieted? Father and mother brings them close to their bosom, to their chest, right? Quiets them, brings them as close to them, into them, into their very embrace that they can possibly be, and that's where they get quieted. exalt over you with loud singing, okay? So he rejoices over you with gladness. Now he's exalting. He's exalting over you, singing, doting over you. So what does it mean to practice being loved by God? Okay, this is just a passage that you could sit down, quiet yourself, take a deep breath, ask, Spirit of God, speak this passage over me, and sit and visualize. I mean literally visualize. what the Bible calls meditation. A strong God exulting over you, right? Rejoicing over you. You are my child. I am so pleased with you. I like you. I love being with you. And then reaching down and embracing you. This is one of my favorite ways to think about communion is that communion is the kiss of God. Is that at this moment, we participate in his very life, his body and blood, and it's God kissing, saying, I love you. So we would be quieted, and we begin to now think about sitting in God's embrace. My mother struggles sleeping, so do I. She says to me one day, hey, Tyler, to help rest, this really helps me. Think about God holding you and rocking you, him quieting you with his love is what she was saying. Then move in this passage, like how you practice being loved by God. Sit at this moment and just visualize him singing over you. And you're going to have moments, I promise you, where like your mind wanders, and then you're going to have moments where you're like, this is so stupid right? It's not, right? Like, if you abide in my word, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You'll change. You feel imprisoned by what you're doing. You'll change. So this is one aspect, is being loved by God and how you do it. Now, there's another arrow, (coughs) because love always has a giving and receiving element. God gives, and then he receives our worship. We give, and we receive. So if you think about when Jesus comes in to wash the disciples' feet, he goes to wash Peter's feet, and what does Peter say to him? Never will I let you, right? I won't receive from you. You're the master. What does Jesus say? If you don't allow me to wash you, your feet, you can have no part in me. Peter then says, then wash all of me, right? You've got to know what it is to be loved by God. Now, So you practice being loved by God, and then in a very real way, you practice loving God. Okay, I'm going to say this really quick because we don't have a lot of time. Um, You receive from God. He's singing over you. What that would now look like in that moment may just be a bursting out, God, I love you. Now, let me acknowledge something. There will be moments where your heart is warmed at such a level that you've meditated on Zephaniah 3.17 or many other passages that you now sit there and go, but my heart hasn't been warmed that much. Like, yes, but I don't feel loved. I don't feel loved to the point where I could honestly say, God, I love you. Listen to me in this. Act, not fake, okay, not fake. Act your way into it. Say, I love you. This is like when you get up in the morning, you're like, I don't feel like working out today. What do they say? Go to the gym. Just get there. Practice it. 
You practice it. It makes habit. Tell God you love him. Don't be like one of these, like, I just want to be authentic. This is what faith is, folks, is even when we don't feel it, right? There's this moment where all these people are coming to Jesus. He goes, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can have no part in me. All these people start scattering. This dude's weird. Like, people accuse Christians of cannibalism. And then his disciples are sitting out there. And he goes, are you going to leave too? What do they say? Where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Folks, this is the moment when you don't feel it where faith shows itself to be faith. I don't feel it, but God, where else would I go? I don't feel it, but here's what I know. You're the only one who can warm my heart like that. This love is the only love I was made for. Colossians 1, I was made by and for you. So you say, God, I love you. And you begin to sing worship songs that you don't even feel like you're supposed to sing. So when you sit in a worship, corporate worship or private worship, and you go, I don't just feel like singing. And you're like, I don't feel like singing. Don't not sing. Sing. Sing your, why, that's what the psalmist says. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Rejoice in God. He's telling himself. Tell him you love him. I love you, God. Sing songs to him. Turn them on and sing songs to him. Practice loving God. Okay, we have moments, if you're an athlete or anything else, you don't feel like practicing. Should you then say, that's not what it's about? No, practice. Do it. That's how you're going to get to the heart. So practice loving God. Now here's the next thing. B, practice being, this, being loved by others. Okay, so Hebrews twice, once in chapter 3, <coughs> once in chapter 10. Chapter 3 says, meet with each other, exhort each other every day as long as it's called today, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The barrier to love is sin. The opposite of love in a very real way, Galatians talks about this, is sin. So you need people around you who are exhorting you every day, as long as it's called today, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. He takes up the same logic in chapter 10, and he says, don't forsake meeting together, right? That you could consistently, he now speaks positively, be spurring each other on to greater love and good deeds. So that adds this other element, that you would spur each other on to love and good deeds, that you would practice loving others. Linda Morris is sitting right in the middle here. She works for an organization called the Harvest Foundation, and they have these things called disciplines of love, love practices. How do you discipline yourself to practice loving other people? Well, you plan it, and you begin to do it. Okay, so you've got to be in community with friends, Proverbs, faithful are the wounds of a friend, who truly love you, who will look in your eyes and go, I really love you. I'm here for you. I'm for you. Who will rejoice with you and rejoice, and you feel so good, right? That you're in this moment, you want to tell somebody about the great things that happened to you, and what completes your joy is your expression of it. C.S. Lewis talks about the completion of our joy is in the expression of it. We're expressing our rejoicing, but the ultimate completion of it is when somebody embraces your rejoicing and rejoices with you, and somebody who's willing to weep with you when you weep. Lament with you when you lament. That don't say, I'm trying to fix it with you, but sit with you and cry with you in your pain. That's, you got to be in community like that. And if you say, I don't know people like that, start it. You start doing it with other people. Practice it. Be in the midst of it. And then you've got to be it to other people. You've got to practice loving other people. Here's where I'm going to end. <coughs> what is this kind of element? not the others to God, but there's this really interesting completion of, in 1 John chapter 4, it says this, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Remember, God starts the circle. And gave himself to be the propitiation for our sins, at infinite cost to himself. Then it says, therefore, we also should love one another. Right? So this exhortation, God 
loved us. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And we love him because he first loved us. So now our love reciprocates. Then he says, therefore, because God loved us like this, we should love each other like this. And then there's this statement in there where he says, no one has ever seen God. And you're like, if you read that passage, you're like, where did this come from? No one has ever seen God. But then he says, but if we love one another, God's love is made perfect in us. Right? I think that passage is saying two things. And I'm ending on this. I think I've gone too long and I apologize. I think that passage is saying two things. One is no one else will ever see God unless we love each other. Jesus speaks about that as well. That's the great apology. They will know us by our love for each other. But I think he's saying you'll never see God unless you love other people. So when you stare and look in the eyes of other people, there's not a pair of eyes you've ever looked into that God doesn't tremendously love. But not just that. I am absolutely wholeheartedly convinced that Victor Hugo in writing Les Mes, that famous line at the end when he says, To love another person, what does he say? Is to see the face of God. I'm convinced he was reflecting on 1 John 4. Is that to love love another person is to see the face of God. You want to see God, and I'll say this, you want to be changed? You want to screw yourself up and watch how powerful love is to change you? Sit at a table with real people. Sit at a table with people who aren't like you. Sit at a table or across from your enemies and watch how fast your heart starts to melt. Look in their eyes. Watch them with their family. See their aspirations. And what's going to happen to you, the reason it's so powerful is because you look into the face of a person and you see the face of God. There's no place on earth that God is more displayed in our world than in the eyes of the people who are sitting around you and the people when you walk out. So think about those four hours. Practice being loved by God. Practice loving God. Practice being loved by others. Practice loving others. All right. I'm done. Any questions? Thoughts, questions, clarifications, declarations of heresy, whatever you want. I'll fight the fight on the biblical precedent. Go for it. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, <coughs> the first word you said, um, to explain the invitation into the Godhead, the first thing you said, explain the what piece? Imputation. Okay. So, hear me on this. Imputation is the idea of Christ's righteousness has been imputed to us. Okay? Imputed means given from outside, the way Luther talked about it, alien righteousness. Righteousness is not your own. It's coming from somewhere else, hence alien. Okay, that's the idea. I 1,000% agree with that. But the imagery of the way in which we get the righteousness, so you'll hear these languages of like, language like being clothed or robed in the righteousness of Christ. That's true if you understand the righteousness of Christ is Christ, okay? Not that he has something called righteousness that he clothes you with. He clothes you with himself. It's way, so what I would argue, the biblical language is way more an invitation into him very so. Abide in me. I'm inviting you into me, and I am in the Father, and he is in me. The invitation is for you to be in me. What is he always saying? Come to me. Not come to like this gift I've set over here. Go feast from the gift. He says, feast on me. Eat my body. Drink my blood. Right? Folks, this is, this is why I say this whole what the Trinity is, is this really union with each other. I am in the Father. He is in me. The Spirit is coming in the midst of the, the Godhead and in the midst of the Godhead. And our invitation is to be in Jesus. Here's what I want you to see. There's no way to understand this. We could go really long on this, and we're not going to somewhat because it's very graphic and provocative. But truth be told, what does he say his imagery with his churches? 
He's the groom, we're the what? Bride. What do grooms and brides do? They consecrate marriages. They experience union unlike any other relationship on earth. It's why this is so sacred, you don't share it outside the marriage bed, right? And what is the picture in Ephesians 5 of the bride and the groom? What I'm speaking of when he speaks about husbands as wives, I'm speaking about Christ in the church, The imagery of the Bible, I'm telling you, is not minor. God speaks to us in metaphors because he made us to relate to things like this. It's substantive levels. And the metaphors he speaks are real-life metaphors. It isn't like, hey, on Mars, there's this guy that does this, and you're like, I don't even know what Mars is like. He goes, let me tell you about things you really know. That's what it's like. I want you in me and me to be in you. Now, the problem is, in so much of our modern, conservative, Protestant, evangelical, we've looked at stuff like that, like, oh, you can't talk about that, that's dirty. That's the whole imagery of the New Testament, is that. God wants that level of intimacy with you, and that's what changes. So if you really wanted to play this thing out, and and you should, because I think the Bible's inviting us to, if you thought in the most sacred, secure, strong, I'm being doted over, rejoicing in gladness, right? Think about this in marriage. A marriage that's secure, that isn't insecure of going, I don't know if when I go home, my spouse is going to be there. I don't know if at night they're talking to somebody else. I don't know if when they're on the computer, they're talking to somebody on Messenger, right? But if you went, I know they're not. I am his and he is mine. I will be their God. They will be my people. The security of that. What does the marriage, the private room look like in that environment? Deeply secure rejoicing over you in love, doting over you with singing, quieting you with their love, right, in the midst of that. That's what Jesus' invitation is to us. That's his invitation. That is in the end when he says, abide in me and and you will be set free. The security that he's offering you because of how strong his love is, folks, is nothing short of than profound. It's that level of intimacy. So you learn when you're a little child in Sunday school, Christianity is not a religion. It's a, the best kind of relationship. Okay, the best, the most, impo- the most impotent, the most unveiled, the most secure, the most naked and exposed relationship there is, is the relationship God wants with us. That's what's so incredible about him is you're going, I don't want to be naked and exposed. Like, you, do you know how much, how many blemishes I have, how much darkness I have, how much has been there? And he's like, come to me. Come to me and I'll make you as white as snow and you will be with me. I won't reject you. Come to me. I'll embrace you and I'll rejoice over you. Come into Christ. That's the idea. So it in no way, hear this very, 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 very clearly. Imputation is true but you receive the righteousness of Christ by being in Christ, not by some Hail Mary he throws over to you that then falls over your body and you're like, yeah, I got this. It's in him, right? It's far more Christocentric, by the way. So, yep. It's a great question. Um, so I'll say this. You desperately, and I'm not saying you, if you, if you fall into that environment, you desperately need to pray for and seek out healthy community that isn't conditional community, Okay that is unconditional community because you really do need to be rewired and there are trusting relationships. So typically people who've grown up in an environment like that in their family really struggle with trust. And can I really trust somebody? So you need to pray for and seek that out. But here's one simple thing I'd say to you to help you get in the game. If you grew up in an environment with a, that was not a very loving, secure home, it might've been abusive or might've been whatever, and you're in the midst of struggles, there's probably moments in the midst of your struggles that you're angry, rightfully so, okay, rightfully so. You're angry by what you lost. 
Here's what I want to tell you. If you're angry by what you lost or saddened by what you never had, you know what's good. You heard what I'm saying? You know what's good because you knowing what's good is what's making you sad. Press into what you know is good. Press into what you wish it was like. Even take yourself, and this is a dark journey, journal what you wish it were like. State on the pages what you're sad about. Talk specifically to God about your losses. Vent what you're pissed about. And then, and then the next page, or th- four or 20, write, this is what I wished it was like. And then when you finish the wished it was like, hear God saying, that's what I'm like, and more. Okay? So don't, don't allow yourself to go, I never experienced it, therefore I don't even know what it's like. That's true, but only to a minor part. You know what it should have been like. So press into that. It'll also make you a better parent. Um, that's what I'd say. Let me pray, and then uh, we'll take a little bit of a break, and then Chris and Kevin will come up. Father, there's no shot. We have it change outside of your love. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask uh, right now that you would be speaking to us very individually, that we would know um, that in Christ you really are happy with us, that you are delighted that we are your children, uh, that you are rejoicing over us in our singing, that you are rejoicing with us when we rejoice and weeping with us when we weep. Uh, God, we acknowledge that we don't have a Savior and a high priest who's unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. But you're one who's been tempted in every way that we have, yet you're without sin. God, therefore, let us boldly approach the throne of grace. Approach it with boldness and confidence uh, because of what you've done in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, let's take a break.